everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> Okay, so Dave, today we're going to do a slightly different podcast. We're going to talk about one specific supplement. And so we wanted to talk about a supplement that you and I, we both use heaps. It's one of our favorite supplements. Personally, I take it uh, quite regularly as well. And that supplement is quercetin. So for those who don't even know what quercetin is, give us a bit of an overview as to what quercetin actually is, Dave. Yeah, well, it's definitely one of our, we would say it's one of our super compounds. Like, and obviously we're just speaking from our perspective, but um, sometimes I feel like I'm in love with quercetin. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I think, yeah, it's important for people to understand what it is. Yeah, okay. Um, it'd be classified as like a, like a flavonoid or bioflavonoid and like a powerful antioxidant. And, and obviously we'll break down these things a little bit more, but it's got so many benefits. It's like, you know, you would almost say, you know, antiviral. It's actually got some antibacterial properties as well, antihistamine and anti-inflammatory. I mean, like, so with that, you probably say that quercetin ticks a lot of boxes. Mm. And it's important to understand, obviously, you know, where we derive it and when we do derive it from certain foods. And from our perspective, it's not always possible for, for people to eat a, a substantial amount of these foods. And also it's very, very highly dependent on quality as well. Yeah. You know, okay. Um, because a lot of the time I say to people, well, you know, quercetin we might be able to get from things like cherries. I think it's like, I'm not sure if it's if, if it's like all cherries, but I just, I know like black cherries are, are quite rich in quercetin. I also want to make it clear. It doesn't mean like you go out, you, you eat a whole heap of black black cherries and all no. the things that we're talking about. Like you're going to get all these. No, totally. Yeah. You need amazing to have a effect and amount. Yeah. 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 Onion, yeah. that's and another the, high, high content yeah, food. Yeah. That's, that's, that's true. Like red onion. And then. Even if you if you do have certain like digestive issues, you know, like a motility issues like SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, well, onion can definitely pose some problem. But red onion on the on the FODMAP realms is is a lot easier on the gut. And yes, it's 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 actually a good source of quercetin. Okay, mm. uh, I think like a lot of the the berries, even like cranberries, blueberries, and you know, one of my favorite ones. Actually, green tea is, is is pretty high in quercetin. Obviously, green tea would be a conversation for another time. I know it's not everyone's cup of cup of tea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, I think I read a post where someone said that switching from coffee to green tea takes eighty seven percent of the enjoyment out of life. So <laughs> <laughs> I love green tea, but that's that's I might be a rarity with that one. So yeah, and actually, and I'm not sure what kind in regards to this, but like red wine mm-hmm. actually does, uh, can be pretty high in quercetin. But once again, I'd say that like totally depends on the, on the grapes. So yeah. there's a color theme going on with a lot of these foods. So this is, I guess, where the whole mentality of like eat the rainbow came in is that certain foods or certain colored um, foods tend to have certain compounds, right? So this tends to be more in these red type foods and berries that has more, more quercetin content. Yeah, like, you know, like powerful, you know, a lot of these darker colored, you know, fruits and vegetables are really rich in like phytonutrients. And obviously there's 
like there's a lot of these types of compounds that have really come to the fore, like resveratrol and so forth, which me personally, and I'm sure that you're the same. Like I'm not very big on that as a, like as no. a, in supplemental form, because there is a lot of research there. We're definitely really big on, and it just covers so many spectrums as well. I mean, obviously we're going to cover the ones that we sort of use it for, but I'm sure it even covers more than that, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. So, and you know, I, I would say it, it's, it's pretty, and once again, I'm probably speaking for you here as well, but I would say it's sort of like a mainstay for us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I use it in, in leaky gut protocols. I use it in dysbiosis protocols, I use it in like asthma protocols in, in, you know, parasite or any sort of food sensitivity or allergy histamine, so many different protocols and people I use this as a supplement with. So like you said, it's so broad spectrum. There's so many benefits to it. Who's it not good for? You know, like it's something you're going to use with so many people. hundred percent, hundred percent. And that's why, you know, once upon a time, probably for me, when I first started, you know, diving into the gut health realms and so forth i wouldn't have said that it was always a constant mm. okay but obviously the the more i discovered about it the more i researched then i just realized like wow like this is uh, just covers so many so many bases yeah um and it is so multifaceted so you know and maybe we should jump into those yeah what's what's bang- let's start with one what's what's the what do you think is the most impressive thing what's the number one most exciting thing that it does i know there's a lot but let's start with one so what do you think if you if you well i think you know yeah one one would be like you know sort of mention it like the the sort of antihistamine aspect yeah okay people call it nature's antihistamine isn't that a word a term for for question yeah yeah and and also we're always going to be honest in terms of what we're talking about here and the one thing i'd say with research with quercetin that maybe this is the one area like i I, I think it's really effective here, but it, it, it might be the one area where most of the research has actually been done on animals. So it's actually, mm. um, you know, I think it's more mice and rat studies and so forth. So and yeah. I know most of the time people are just going to say, well, that doesn't mean it's, you know, really definitive. And I, like, I get it. I understand where they're coming from, but that's where most of the studies have actually been done when it actually yeah. comes to its antihistamine uh, benefits. So I just want to throw that out there. But I've definitely noticed this within clients, like vast improvements in this realms. And what it essentially does, it like stabilizes mast cell activity. And a lot of people are going to go, like, what are mast cells? Try and probably dumb it down as much as I can. But these are a type of immune cell. And they're really, they're really critical for like allergic reactions. Mm. And so this is to do with like histamine reactions. Okay, maybe a, a way of understanding if you've got, you know, maybe ramped, ramped up mast cell activity is like within the blood markers is if you had like, you know, elevated MEBs like monocytes, sonophils and basophils, like the yeah. total of those three, and that's ramped up or even elevated basophils, which are like a granulocyte mm-hmm. and they're to do with histamine activity. And those things that increase, then there's a good chance that you've got ramped up mast cell activity. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so quercetin is really, for me, it's going to tick the box here. Okay. Because essentially what it does, it stabilizes that. So it's actually really good for blocking you would say like pro-inflammatory compounds. And it actually blocks in this, in regards to something like mast cell activity and histamine activity, it blocks um, interleukin-8 and it actually blocks uh, TNF-alpha as well, like pro-inflammatory proteins. And so by blocking these actually helps to mitigate. And I've even think that they've noticed that because it actually helps with this excess amounts of histamine activity. And we've got to understand if, if we do have like ramped up histamine, I mean, histamine will play on histamine receptors, which are protein molecules, 
won't I'll try not to go down that rabbit hole, but there's all these different histamine receptors mm. and go H1, H2, H3, H4. If you're playing on more H1 receptors, that causes these typical histamine reactions, maybe like food sensitivities, skin reactions, like rashes and hives and those you know typical allergic reactions, maybe runny nose, watery eyes, all these types of things. And a big, big factor here is like skin and causing issues with the skin, like skin reactions and so forth, maybe eczema and so forth. And they've actually shown that it can actually really be, be really good for allergic reactions and like skin reactions and things like eczema and so forth. Yeah. So, you know, and once again, I know it, I know it's based on the animal studies and so forth. So I'm not saying that's, that that's definitely conclusive. Yeah. Okay? Yep. But I would say from what I've, what I've seen, I'm sure you're the same, Jake, is that it definitely can account to, uh, or, or can cause like a vast improvement in like uh, people who do get like skin reactions and so yeah. forth. Yeah. And I know, you know, we don't want to harp on too much about animal studies, but there was a really interesting one I have seen in this domain where it was mice or rats and they, um, they took out, they, they genetically bred these mice so they didn't have any, any mast cells. And the mice without mast cells weren't able to actually develop gut permeability, right? There was, they, they couldn't have leaky gut. And so there's, there's another study actually where they had um, kids on the autism spectrum disorder and they use a different compound, not quercetin, but they use something to help reduce mast cell activation. And there's a vast improvement in, in autism symptoms. And so clearly we know this mast cell activation is in some way contributing to leaky gut. Okay. Whether that's the primary way or whether it's at least a large factor, but it's, it's certainly a big impact here. And so quercetin having this impact of mast cell activation, that's going to have more than an impact just on histamine, but leaky gut or potentially, you know, um, whether there's autoimmune conditions or a whole host of other things as well. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, probably a good segue in terms of when you are talking about like uh, leaky gut, okay, mm. because that's another area that um, quercetin is going to have some huge benefits. And obviously from our perspective, the amount of people that have damage to, to the gastrointestinal lining and uh, once again, there's many different types of damage that you can have, whether it's hyperpermeability or the traditional form of leaky gut. One compound that can be really significant to actually help with the structure, like I, I like to call quercetin the carpenter. It's, it sort of goes in there and it starts to put all the structure back together again. And you can actually look at this, you know, um, some research studies. And I think one of them was, was, was done in, um, it might have been like uh, 2009, and in 2009, they actually found that quercetin can actually help with the assembly and actually the expression of tight junction proteins. Yep. And, and for people who don't know, okay, when we're talking about uh, tight junction proteins, that you know the intracellular tight junctions, which is sort of the gap between the epithelium, those intracellular tight junctions are made up of all these tight junction proteins. And there's all these different sections of the intracellular tight junctions. It's complex, tight junctions, adherent tight junctions, desmosomies, gap junctions, okay? And they're made up of all these different types of tight junction proteins. They just help with the integrity. And they pretty much help to decide what's going to go through these intracellular tight junctions and also what's not, okay? So they're essentially mm. like filter proteins and they also control the width of the intracellular tight junctions. So whether it's going to be nice and tight or whether it's going to open up a little bit. And so they actually found that quercetin can actually help with the assembly of things like zolon, which is like the gatekeeper that can actually help with occluding, which is one of the major like filter type junction proteins. And it can actually help with claudine one, which is another 
major tight junction protein, and then actually helping with the expression of claudine 4. Okay, so these are all major tight junction proteins. Mm. So, and that's what I'm talking about, their structure and actually helping with their expression. And so this is really important for the integrity of the intracellular tight junctions and the and the structure of the the epithelium and the gut lining and obviously we've got epithelium within the within the lungs and the blood brain barrier as well so really important for all these areas that i'm talking about there even to the extent where they and i think once again i, I think it might have been like 2011 another study okay where they actually found that the um quercetin actually helped with the assembly and exp- and the expression once again of just the tight junction barrier function mm. and once again you know because intestinal permeability and these 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 types of complications are really just getting worse and worse and they're on the rise well quercetin is coming more and more to the fore and even like and i'm sure you're the same because i really love to use quercetin now in antimicrobial yeah. protocols and i think we've talked about this it's not something we we did always mm. but we talked about it and we thought well th- that makes sense to start using it yeah okay and the reason being is because and and this we could apply this to antibiotics as well but if you're using antibiotics or you're using antimicrobials like herbal based you are creating obviously more herxone reactions and die off you're creating more yeah. cell death immune response detoxification and with that you can be creating also more like epithelial permeability more mm. pressure there why wouldn't you have the protection of something like quercetin to actually help with that yeah yeah. And that's such an overlooked thing, isn't it? Like so often I'll see people who are doing an antimicrobial phase or they're doing antibiotics for SIBO or H. pylori, and they're not doing any of that support. And that support stuff, that, that's what's going to make the protocol, um, you know, be hell for someone to go through or make it an experience where sure they might still experience a Herxheimer, but they're not causing this collateral damage along the way. They're not going to feel as bad along the way because you're actually giving them some, some of this support in it as well that they need. So, you know, like you said, that's something we didn't necessarily used to do. You know, it's only the last year. So I've really started using quercetin in that way. But especially people who are more prone to those negative reactions when they are doing antimicrobial treatment, certainly it's been really beneficial. For sure. And then like we could pro- probably relate it to, you know, something that's more current in the in the environment at the moment, okay? Because if you do have more things like epithelial permeability and mm. like hyperpermeability and these types of things, and obviously you can get that in the, you know, in the gastrointestinal tract, you can get it in the lungs. And a good sign that you probably got epithelial permeability in the lungs is you'd have like respiratory problems like asthma and yep. and these types of respiratory uh, illnesses. And so when, when people have a lot of that type of activity taking place, and even when they're getting exposed to things like, you know, uh, respiratory viruses and things like SARS and COVID and these types of things, well, you know, they can definitely have a, a, a lot more of a, like a cytokine storm. And I don't want to make it sound like that's really bad because we're just talking about ancient and antibody response. And we're talking about immune response. We're just yep. talking about trigger mechanism, cellular activation, mediator response. But if you've got too much of a cytokine storm, especially when you've already got damage to the epithelium and the intracellular tight junctions and the tight junction proteins, which unfortunately a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the storm is really big. So you have a lot of these like pro-inflammatory proteins uh, and and you can have more things like IL-1. I don't want to make it, once again, I don't want to make it sound like these things are bad. I don't want people to get me wrong. Normal. Okay. But you can have a raise in some of these pro-inflammatory proteins like IL-1. You can have a raise in, in other protein molecules. One is called NF-kappa B. Now, NF-kappa B, I must, once again, I'm not saying this is bad, but they've actually shown that quercetin, this study was 2021. 
pretty recent. And this was in relation to respiratory virus. And they're basically saying that it actually helped to interfere with NF-kappa-B, quercetin. Mm. Okay? Now, NF-kappa-B, for people who don't know, in the most layman's ter- terms, when you have high amounts of this, that can switch on your genetic predisposition for things like autoimmune disease and cancer. And so, you know, IL-1, pro-inflammatory, but also there's a thing called TH17. Once again, I'm not saying this is bad, um, normal, okay, but quercetin potentially can suppress TH17. And then that actually, because TH17 expresses interleukin-17, Okay, I'm just talking about pro-inflammatory activity here. And with that, that can actually uh, create the recruitment of more neutrophils. And people are going to go, if you know anything about neutrophils, which is you know 50 to 60% of your white blood mm. cell supply, well, people go, well, that's good, your white blood cells. And mm. it sounds great, but your, your, your own immune system can create more epithelial permeability and create yeah more damage within the gut line, especially if it's like getting really ramped up. And you can get, we've spoken about this, gastrointestinal neutrophil mediated injury. What mm-hmm. the hell does that mean? Injury to the gut lining and the epithelium caused by the neutrophils. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so quercetin is actually really good to suppress that. So we don't get this like ramped up cytokine storm. Now, that sounds pretty amazing to me. Yeah. Okay. Especially now, that doesn't current- mean that someone with low neutrophils is going to have lower neutrophils if they take quercetin, does it? That's just saying that no. this overstimulation. Yeah. Because a lot of people do have low neutrophils. I don't want someone listening to this to think, oh, well, I can't take it then because I've got low neutrophils. Yeah. That's not you. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not talking about the regard, in regards to, you know, neutropenia. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that just means you have low neutrophils. Um, I'm talking about like this cytokine storm where we really want to, yeah. so we don't have so much of this collateral damage yeah. in this instance when you do get exposed to something like a respiratory virus. Okay. Yeah. You know, quercetin is, is like um, like a no-brainer in this instance. Mm. Yeah, okay. And I'm not saying, I'm not, by no means, and, I'm, and Jake's the same, by no means am I saying it's a cure, but I'm saying for not flaming the fire yeah yeah and if it's, anything, it's also could, not a supplement we would just give by itself either i'm not going to be like hey here's your leaky gut critical just take quercetin <laughs> uh, and there's certain things like you know you can look at like quercetin in in combination with a lot of other compounds can be pretty phenomenal as well yeah. and i guess one of our arguments and maybe it's a conversation for another time would be basically to say that when a lot of people do research they do it on the the compound independently and yeah. For me, that's actually where a lot of the issues lie because a lot of compounds work in conjunction um, with other compounds extremely well. So in this instance, you get a combination of like quercetin and combine that with something like zinc alcarnosine. What a great combination. You get something like quercetin and combine that with like an enzyme like, you know, bromelain. Well, once again, there's a bit of like a a even more powerful antihistamine because bromelain is like an anti-inflammatory enzyme. And I'm not saying that's a combination you, you once again that you give to every single person, but I'm saying it, it's more to the point that you start getting these combinations of these things. Yep. And a lot of these things can be amplified. I'd probably say from what I've just uh, mentioned there, that that combination of like zinc alcarnosine and quercetin, yeah. like, uh, especially around the immune system and cytokine storms and all these types of things. Wow. What a great combination. Yeah. Yeah. And NAC, you throw that into the mix as well. And, and that, that trio, but that's a good point. I think people do need to understand when they look at papers and look at research and, you know, maybe the effect of a compound isn't, you know, doesn't appear to be that significant or, or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but it's being used in isolation. You know, there was one study um, not to do with quercetin, but it was on, on people with chronic fatigue. And I'm not sure if you've seen this one, Dave, and they had um, 
the, the study actually proposed that the, the mechanism for chronic fatigue was gut permeability. And what they did with the, the subjects who had chronic fatigue syndrome is they treated them for gut permeability and they used glutamine and they used zinc. And I think those was a third compound they used. I forget what it was off the top of my head. And after it was about a year of therapy, it was a pretty long period, but they found a significant improvement, something like 60%, 50% of people improved in their chronic fatigue symptoms from doing this leaky gut protocol. But all they used was zinc and glutamine and one other thing. It's like, yeah, okay, that's great. If you got those effects from those couple of things, imagine if you added in quercetin and you added in BPC-157 and you add, like you did this full leaky gut protocol, those studies would look so different, but we just don't have that kind of data. Exactly. If we got the soup, Okay. Yeah. If we got if we got more of the soup together, I mean, I think you'd find the when they actually did the research of that soup together, that the findings would be far more significant. Yeah. I can't prove that, and and Jay can't prove that, but <laughs> we um, can we can point to to hundreds and and thousands of clients who can attest to that. Exactly, and then also like you you just have to look at them independently, and then just go well. There's a bit of common sense here as well, and just yeah. say if we start combining these things, well wow, imagine like this benefit. Okay. And I think that's where research really needs to go. Yeah. I mean, research really needs to start combining compounds together and actually do the research on when these things are combined together and not necessarily in isolation. There's definitely not going to be as much bang for your buck in isolation as it is going to be with the, with the, 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 synergistic the benefit of other compounds. Yeah, yeah. The synergenic, the synergenic uh, effect of other compounds as well. So when it comes to quercetin, we touch on some of the foods that have it in it. And a lot of the time you hear people say things like, oh, you know, supplements, you don't really need supplements or it's the icing top of the cake or it's 1% or whatever. You can just get this stuff from food. Now, yeah, you can get this stuff from food. It's isolated from food. But I, I would make the case or, or the argument that you simply cannot get anywhere near enough to have the kind of benefits we're talking about, okay? You might be able to get, you know, a small degree of that benefit, but if we're really designing a, a permeability protocol around this, so someone's got severe histamine issues, that's not going to get better just by eating an onion. So we actually need to use fairly high dose of these things and not just higher dose than what we get in food. But a lot of the time, higher dose than what you actually get in the supplement packet. You know, you look at a supplement packet and it says take one one capsule once a day. And it's like, okay, well, that's probably not going to do anything. I mean, it's going to be better than nothing, but it's not going to be anywhere near enough to actually get this impact. So there are different types to look at. Um, you know, there's we use a form called emic sometimes, which is about 40 times more bioavailable than a standard quercetin. But even a standard quercetin, that's what a lot of these studies are done on. So a quercetin dihydrate, that's a really cheap, easy to access form. I still use that a lot. Personally, I take them myself. Um, that's still in the realms of something like 20 times more bioavailable than just a standard like quercetin um, you know, compound by itself. So something that's bound to some kind of like a, a phytosome or if it's bound to like a, a fat molecule that tends to have a better absorption, but we need to make sure we're dosing it high enough. Something like emic, the dosing is going to be less because it is so bioavailable, but a standard quercetin, you know, we've talked in realms of, um, I know you I often use about a thousand milligrams per, per serving, maybe sometimes even a bit upwards of that. Yeah, and look, if you probably look at a, a lot of the research and around the stuff that I've been talking about, and you look at the, the dosage in that a lot of the time they recommend, it could be like, you know, 500 milligrams twice a day. Twice a day. Uh -huh. um, but, it, you know, I can definitely use a lot more than that, okay? Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I'm not, and by no means am I, am I telling people to go out and just start using this, like, mega, mega dosage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But definitely, like, 
you know, because one thing we didn't talk about, you know, there's evidence to show that very high dosaging, and I think this might be around the sort of like 2000 milligram uh, sort of realms, even like a little bit more than that, but they sort of did a lot of this uh, research on asthmatics, you know, okay? mm-hmm. and just to understand epithelial permeability within the lungs. Mm-hmm. And these were people with chronic asthma and the, the results around in terms of like actually you know, benefiting these people with chronic asthma was, was phenomenal. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not saying that quercetin is a cure for chronic asthma, but I've had, you know, people who've had a lot of respiratory distress and, and respiratory problems like asthma and have seen vast improvements yeah. in, in terms of having to use things like uh, preventative, like steroidal inhalers, you know, ventilant inhalers. And I'm speaking from experience as well, because I was a, a chronic asthma sufferer. And when I actually, and once again, I'm, I'm just talking about from my perspective, okay, when I actually uh, fix my gut and you've got to understand there's a transference when you fix your gut to your lungs. Yeah. Okay. Cause we're, we're, we're talking about gut associated lymphoid tissue. You improve gut associated lymphoid tissue and that has a direct transference to bolt, which is bronchial associated lymphoid tissue. Okay. So you fix your gut. Okay. You're going to have a good transference to the respiratory tract. And I basically watched myself transform from a, a chronic asthma sufferer to not using preventative inhalers and not using a Ventolin inhaler. And I, I, I really failed to believe that my clients, me are the exception to the rule. Mm. So huge benefits there when it comes to respiratory complications like asthma. And you can find that in, uh, in, in certain studies. Yeah, that's really good. Okay? And so that, and they were using very, very high dosaging within that just yeah. to understand. And that's a good point to make that, you know, depending on a purpose will depend on the dose you use. Yeah. Not everyone's going to be the same. Maybe if we're using just for general support and a permeability phase, it might be lower dose. If you're using it, um, you know, in that instance for asthma or some kind of infection, you might use higher dose. So, you know, we can't tell you sort of what the perfect dose for you will be here on a podcast, but um, you know, a lot of the studies do vary quite vastly in the amount that they're using and for different purposes, you can go quite high. And, and, and even smaller dosaging for, for, for children. Yeah, okay. yeah. Because obviously it is smaller dosaging, but obviously, you know, a lot of children with histamine type issues, yeah. which obviously histamine is produced and broken down in the gut. So really their, their issue is within the digestive system and definitely children can have issues with like hyperpermeability and damage yeah. to the gut lining. So I'm not saying in the dosaging that we've been talking about here, okay, but in smaller dosaging, yeah. there can definitely be some benefits. I mean, they do talk about, you know, like really, really high dosaging. Does it have some... Uh, you know, effects on the kidneys. I mean, uh, I'm not saying it doesn't, but I know with even like high dosaging of quercetin, they've actually found, you know, because a lot of people, when they've got even like histamine issues and so forth, they would use things like antihistamines, but the benefit of something like quercetin, it has little to no side effects. Mm. And and that seems like a a far better option in that instance. Yeah. (laughs) That kidney Um, argument, I just, I, I don't think I've ever seen a client's bloods where, you know, we're using a stack of supplements and I'm seeing evidence in the kidney markers that there's any issue there. I and hear that, people worried about that all the time. I just feel yeah, like, when does that happen? Yeah. And I understand because people look it up and they say like in the, in the really, really high dosaging and it might affect the kidneys, but I've never seen that re- referred to like referred in like blood markers, yeah. like any issues with EGFR, the filtration rate on the kidneys or anything like that. So mm. it doesn't, definitely doesn't seem to, to be a problem in the high dosage. No. And, that, and that's, that's coming about with many people. Yeah. So Dave, before we leave everyone to go out and, and, and put question out of stock on iHerb and, 
and other websites. Is there anything else we want to conclude with? Anything else you want to say about Quercetin? Well, yeah, like literally, I I think I'm in love with it. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's going to get I like, just, I love Quercetin t-shirts made. Uh, They'll be well, available on his website shortly. Yeah, well, if people want us to make up I love Quercetin t-shirts, <laughs> um, I'm down for it, okay, because we should love it. That's what I would say. And then just like even like what we talked about here, but there's even other studies. You can look at other studies and there's ones around like VO2 max, like blood flow, mm. you know, cut, like cardiovascular, blood pressure. So look at some of these things as well. And once again, it, you just think about how many boxes is actually ticking. You can see why we, we really put it up there as a, as a super compound. Like from, from my perspective, I'm sure you're the same, Jake. Yeah. There's, no doubt it, there's no doubt it is. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'd say a top five for both you and I, and we might do future episodes on other compounds in our top five, because it's definitely, definitely up there. So keep doing some digging, keep doing some researching, see what else it's beneficial for, because it's it's a pretty long list. And um, <laughs> yeah, go get some, give it a go. And, and we'll be in touch with our I Love Quercetin t-shirts in the near future. <laughs> and then we, we might make up a whole series of our super compounds. <laughs> I love these super the compounds. Supplement yeah. t-shirts. Yeah, new fashion line. <laughs> okay, thanks, Dave. All right, see ya. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.